0: Hello and welcome to Ops in Lockdown. This week we're talking to Jason Stead from GES and our chosen subject is the big contractor and us. Hello and welcome to another week in Ops in Lockdown. It's great to see you all. If you haven't got your cameras on, stick them on. It's probably the best bit of the week for all of us uh, to see some happy faces on the screen. Uh, So this session, we've had a really, really broad and mixed um, set of um, people on talking about things from all different angles. And that really underpins what ops is all about, whether you're ops in an organiser, a contractor or a venue, our breadth of knowledge is where uh, we get our, um, our most value and where our clients and our employees get our most value as well. So who we haven't had on yet is one of the big contractors. Um, so I'm really delighted that Jason uh, said yes when I asked him if he'd come along and give us a perspective of things from a uh, big contractor Uh, view. So Jason uh, has been at GES now since uh, 2014 and he's come from a really mixed background so he came through automotive, utilities, broadcasting and then landed in EMAP as an organiser so he's got a great breadth of knowledge himself and what he brings to the contracting community is uh, really great, uh, really dynamic and really passionate. So, um, Jason, you probably are kicking me and you for agreeing to take a good half an hour or two out of your day and the week that I think we can all safely say is probably one of the worst weeks in our industry. Uh, but thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Though.
0: So we're going to go straight into our questions. Um, as usual get your chats open if you've got any questions for jason or just a perspective on a bigger uh, contractor industry basis then pop them in the chat and i promise i'll get to at least one or two of them so big question starting off as we always do some might think that being in a big company you are somewhat shielded from some of the effects of the situation right now is that true or is it a case of big company big problem
1: yeah uh... Definitely the latter. Uh, I wouldn't say big problem. It's a challenge for everybody. I think part of the um, part of this crisis is that nobody predicted it. It's a black swan event, and I think you know to answer your question in terms of being a big contractor. I'm not sure I I like that term or not, but I understand why you use it. uh, Is that you have big overheads and you have big salary bills and you have big commitments, and when times are planable and you do plan quite a long. I mean, I plan five years in advance. Um, when a when a black swan event like this happens you have to go into reactive mode and that and that and that is difficult and you have to adjust quickly and a bigger organization tends to be less nimble for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. so big challenges Um, I think the team around me and the plans we put in place are robust and we're delivering on them and we're delivering them at pace and some of them um, some of them are positive I'd say strategically we are ahead of where we were planned to be so this period of no work has allowed a lot of crystallization of our plans with clients and our strategy to come to the fore and, and, and mature quicker than it would have already otherwise done um, but then there are other things that are less good to look at you know and things like you know how do you shed overhead quickly so there's a, so there's a good bit strategically mm-hmm. pushing on and then the bad bit in the sense of you know having to adjust and everything that goes with that
0: yeah i suppose also um with small companies um there's a lot of empathy in the room you know everyone feels for the small guys uh, because it's more like hand to mouth uh you know livelihoods houses all that kind of stuff but actually uh, as the bigger you get uh, I've, i've kind of been seeing it on linkedin the empathy seems to go down the bigger the company is almost like well you know there should have been plans in place a bit like you kind of we, there's no way we could have had a plan in place for this are you finding that as well or is um, or is um it- I don't know
1: about the empathy piece I understand why you know it's uh, it's we're there to be knocked aren't we and I, I think the bigger you are there is a an assumption often incorrect that you are immune to this sort of stuff and clearly not um I think the plans in place when you look at our disaster recovery plans of which we we've got many mm. um a global pandemic isn't high on that it is on the list weirdly but it's not high on the list you know when you think about things like strikes and fires and brexit and everything else that you'd be planning for um a global pandemic that shuts your industry down within a month is probably not high on any of our disaster recovery lists so um yeah
0: i agree yeah (laughs) well i think um everybody needs to feel for everyone right now Um, big small and everything in between so um, moving forward from this um, what does uh, life in GES hold for future next steps of post-COVID events?
1: Well I think think the first part of that question is when is post-COVID? So (laughs) the the, the challenge you've got and you saw it on the news this morning where Chris Whitty or whoever is advising the government is, is feeling that you know, we are a potential breeding ground for this virus. And, you know, the, the headlines I woke up to this morning was potential second wave, 120,000 more deaths. Um, you know, that, that that's killing our business, biz- our biz- collective businesses in our industry. Yeah. So shows that were um, moved back from the beginning of this year into the latter half of this year, and are shuffling off into the first quarter of next year. Now those shows are shuffling off into the second or third quarter of next year. So this becomes a a long drought for us as an industry. Um, so I, th- I think that was that's our first challenge is where, where's the bottom? We need to touch the bottom before you can push off back to the top. And the second part of that question is you know what we're doing as a business is rewiring it is the answer. So I've, I've just done a piece for the US and saying look you know as a one of the challenges of being a big business is you're always busy. So habitually People get into that habitual thinking and they've got a great excuse not to do something, not to plan, not to test, not to do anything too radical because they're busy. Well, we're not busy now. So, you know, I've got my business in bits and I'm looking at how I'm rewiring it and building it back and it won't look the same going forwards as it did going into this
0: yeah and is there some exciting <coughs> innovation coming out of that um, have there been any moments where as you've been rewiring stuff you've kind of had that opportunity to go why on earth have we always done it like this and uh, is there anything you're excited <coughs> about in your future rewiringness?
1: yeah lots when we've only got half an hour so I probably can't yeah, tell you about great. all of them but uh, <laughs> uh, every day you have a moment where you look at it and go I just don't know why we're doing this yeah. um, and you talk about efficiencies and the most efficient thing to do is to stop doing something. And it's moments like this, and it is a crisis and that we face as an industry. You think, well, why am I doing that?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, whether it's customers who, are, who don't pay you or customers who don't value what you do or you know, processes you run internally that are just habitual, that actually when you find that somebody's on furlough and not doing it, nothing really changes. So why were we doing it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, right down to things like um, big investments you know million pound investments and things like that you know why we why are we replacing like for like why don't we try something different
0: yeah I, I think it's certainly something I'm excited and uh, we'll come and kind of onto it at the end when we start talking about essa but and the future of our contracting community but i think there's some massive stuff to come we've we've spent the um obviously kind of doing the same thing as you but on a much smaller level um, and what i found really exciting is that um it's given us the impetus for that change not to come from me but to come from my team you know so i had uh, you know tabs who does uh, who's an operations manager for us has totally redrawn our base camp project management tool um, so that they can seize it, and they can use it how they want to use it um, it 's it's really empowering in some ways as well um, well you
1: see you see in your team, Lou, when you do that, who steps up and who and who waits to be told who naturally steps into that leadership role so it's it 's refreshing in that way it 's yeah. a good opportunity for
0: people yeah absolutely so um do you think it 's going to be okay to say no in the future
1: uh, yeah uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of the, so I've been at GS for six years. HR sent me a, a little note saying you've been there for six years like earlier, um, last month. And I, it's quite scary. I think that's the longest I've ever stayed in somewhere. but it has gone quick. Um, but I think the majority of my job in that six years has been changing people's hearts and minds. There's plenty of process and efficiency and product launch and marketing work you can do. But really, it's in people's heads as to whether they're going to make the business succeed. And saying no is, is an integral part of that. Um, I think Steve Barrett called it out on a, an Exhibition News article maybe a month or so ago. It said we've created a buyer's market in our industry. And he was, you know, Steve and I, uh, you know, have robust discussions every now and again. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree with him. We have created a buyer's market. And if we're not careful, that, that will be our demise. Because if we are, if we don't say no, not for being difficult, but in a pragmatic way, Um, then you won't create funds to invest and you won't create headroom to think differently. And eventually we'll have a Kodak moment as an industry where we become irrelevant. And I think that's that's really important to avoid that.
0: Yeah, I've had a number of conversations over the last week where uh, contractors that I've been needing to use on shows next year, I've kind of now sick of putting the love in it for free and have gone out of the industry. And I, and I think um, that just sums up um, sums up that moment. If we keep saying yes, and we keep doing it for the love, uh, and we're not charging the right amounts, we are, we're gonna crucify ourselves going forward. Yeah, definitely but, time look, to- I would, I, w-
1: I would agree with that. And I think part of, part of it is valuing what we do. Um, and I don't mean in a, a sort of collective, Union sort of bargaining sense or being difficult. What I mean is, you know, just understanding what our strategy is as any company of any size. And I think one of the mo- most notable things I've noticed in in the events industry since joining well, in 2009 is that there is a preferred strategy of just being cheaper, and it's it's strategic uh, suicide in the long term because you can see what happens. Um, a small a small business what is a is very comfortable, you know, these used to be called lifestyle business or what you call now an SME, very comfortable. They they do well at their job and encouraged to grow. And they grow but with that it takes on extra overheads and costs and everything else. But if you don't have a strategy other than price-based strategy, then you get stretched at both ends. Your margin goes down, your costs go up. Mm. And there comes a point, and this is this pandemic is highlighting that across our industry where that is too taut uh, and can break. Yeah. Um, and I think that that strategic savviness and, you know, there are plenty of other routes other than cost. So it's, you know, I talk about innovation a lot less, I'm a big fan of testing things mm. you know, and trying stuff out, you know, um, Ian Solomon will, will tell you that from my to I days. Yeah.
0: Well, I think um, we're also limiting ourselves going forward. So those of us that are still in it by the by the end of all of this, um, you know, clients do want choices. And I think sometimes the contractor community stifles the choices because they assume that the answer is going to be no. And so we've actually stopped asking the question uh was actually the more the more we keep pushing and saying well we could do this and it'll cost you £10.50 a square meter or we could do this and it'll cost you 12 or we could do this and it's going to be this or we could do that we stopped giving organizers the opportunity to innovate as much um and therefore we are not surprised when the prices just stay as they always have been we're not we kind of programmed to not to not develop the change i
1: think i would say on that if if the it's a second sentence of every conversation we have is it will cost you this. Then we failed yeah. before we've got into the third sentence. You know, we, I encourage my teams now to sit there with clients and, and to not talk about pricing or anything other than their strategy for the first two meetings. Cause I want to understand what they're trying to do. And if they're, if they're at a strategic impasse in terms of, they just want to do more of the same because organizers suffer from habitual thinking mm. as well as, mm. as well as suppliers then we'll give them some choices and we know that it's human nature to be prefer one thing over another whether it's a beer or whether it's a donut or what whatever people will make a choice given some choices um, mm. so we put some choices in front of people and it starts a conversation down a route and adds value in a different way that's not just the same again as last time out less mm. a bit, you know, uh, which is which is totally uh changed the way we're doing business so i've got to say you know that's mm. part of this strategic bite that's happened in the last six, you know four months
0: yeah and that's a real that's going to be a real shift for the operational community because you know if we if we're looking at you know we put shows out to tender every now and then we try you know try and encourage organizers not to do it too often because there's yeah. you know loyalty and uh value for money in working with you know partners rather than just contractors um But the nuts and bolts of it are, is that the tendering process is a thing to do on an operations person's list. And at the moment, that quite often starts with going out to three or four companies, getting the prices in and then taking it to that next step. Whereas what you're you're saying is you almost choose one and then make it work thereafter as an
1: approach. Yeah, that's a... multi-faceted answer i need to give you there i think one is you know use your supply chain as a well as an procurement director i always use my supply chain as free consultancy if you don't use and love your suppliers as free consultancy how on earth are you going to know because you're not experts in your field they are and talking to them is for for free you know Mm -hmm. and a lot of them the, the savvier ones will pick up on your challenges and come back and say hey jay we heard what you were saying and we've got maybe this will help you with that problem. And, and you never get rid of those suppliers because they're, they yeah. are, they're, they're free mental horsepower that's just plugged into your business. Yeah, I think, I think this, the second thing on, you know, looking at the tendering process is it's, it's one way and it's a, it's, a, it's a cost-based reduction and it's because ops own it. And because ops own it, ops run budgets, not P&Ls.
0: Mm.
1: And then when you get out of, when I left procurement into a wider, more exec management role, you soon become aware that it's the P&L that runs the business, not the budget. Um, you can't save your way to success, for example. Mm. Now, if you're looking at it from a P&L perspective, you need to be efficient. So there's a cost element to it, but you need to grow. And it's only growth that really drives your business forward. So a supplier should help you grow rather than help you save a bit. If you're helping, if you're just thinning out and cheapening what you do, then ultimately that will show on the show floor. Rebook will be weaker. Your brand proposition will be less strong. You look cheap. Mm. You know things will start to fall over, and that that then damages your brand in the big, in the biggest sense, and which is much much harder to recover from, especially mm. since most shares are annual.
0: Mm. it's going to be interesting how that one plays out. I've got a couple of questions that are on the chat here. Okay. So we're going to start so Ash from EFI. I actually met Ash for a cup of tea in my on my front um, lawn this week. Never met him before in my life until ops and lockdown. Hi Ash, nice to see you again. Um so with shows and events migrating to first safe start date whenever that is, how will the main show contractors like GES cope with demand overlap?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good question, Ash. At the minute, I don't think there will be any demand overlap. Um, I think we have a finite capacity in venues. We deal with demand overlap anyway. If you take our typical January, three of our biggest shows are right on top of each other, followed quickly by a fourth. Um, most of those shows will be, in my view, about half the size they they were in previous years. And most of those shows are half the size will have half of the things in them. Let's say features and things because they will be bringing it back on a minimum viable product basis. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to think that we have that. If we have that challenge, I'd be delighted it would be one of the best problems <laughs> I've had in a long time. But um, right now, I don't see it. Yeah. But I'd love to improve on it.
0: I agree. I, I think um, we'd love a bit of overload in the right way mm-hmm. at the moment. <laughs> like, give me an Oki key. Um, yeah let's crack on we've always managed to make the impossible happen happen before i think we'd probably find a way um and i think throughout this whole situation we are stronger as a community together we would draw on each other's resources and we just uh, make the best of a of a tough situation um we've got another one here Slightly savage, um, <laughs> why didn't GS right move sooner to diversify and innovate over the last four months?
1: Um, I think there's, well, there's a number of ways to answer that question. The honest answer is cash flow. So if everybody's, if you're suffering from cash flow, the taps get turned off, but you have a big overhead drain, cash burn to manage, diversifying into something else. Um, a requires investment and there's a good chance that what you're trying to diversify in will be an already populated market so you would been moving you'd spend money to get into a diversified market and once you're in there you'll find that there's not enough money to be made in there because everybody else is in there so an example of that is let's make some face masks or something like mm. that so yes you could do it but if you're managing your cash flow and you don't know how long your cash has got to last for and, and you know and there's not if we get you know i uh, genuinely hope we don't but if we get a second wave that could be deep into next year it's less about diversification and more about survivability i think yeah for everyone I, how big you
0: are. Yeah. yeah exactly i don't think that's a big big company problem i, I my response if that were you know Kind of the same question to me. The only we have slightly diversified, obviously, because I'm sitting here in a studio, <laughs> which is totally bonkers from four year, four months ago. Um, however, that that has happened in my overnight time. So I've like do a night job now, which is is diversification. I've had to spend all my day job securing the business, and and I don't think anybody could underestimate how much um, senior head time it takes to diversify. Um, at the time when actually your senior heads need to be underpinning and supporting the business and figuring out what the strategic next steps are. Um, I think um, the one person, I mean I, I love Noel Rocket who came on a previous session, he's just put out a little video on LinkedIn and if you've not seen it go and have a look because he, he is inspirational in terms of diversification, uh, I think he's done a cracking job um, but I think you know there are a lot of companies out there that do the same thing as him that have chosen the other way and neither is right nor wrong um we're just making the best of a bad situation aren't we? fab i'll go into one of my own questions which is a bit more kind of um altruistic so is there an altruistic role that the larger contractors can play in our community
1: uh, yeah I, I think the answer to that is yes uh right now it 's hard to you know pin that down because everybody's in you know, just trying to work out how best to get through it. I think in the longer run, there definitely is i, I don't think there'll ever be a point whereby um, sorry dog's gone crazy um, i don't think there'll ever be a point where there's just a supplier, you know a big Freeman or a big g s or a big messer. I think there is a an element of wanting to engage others and if you think about business models going forwards they're going to be more virtual and less hard asset based so there'll be a wider community with probably distinct I wouldn't say unique but different assets and different propositions Mm. that will get pulled together potentially by a bigger contractor because of that access for big big shows so there will be a there will be an altruistic sort of um leaning and using a supply chain i think if you mean altruistic as in charitable probably not you know i just i work for a u.s corporate um and it's just not like that you know mm.
0: yeah well i'm sure we can find a sliver of the british way in there somehow
1: <laughs> oh, I, mean, I think what we say on that Lou, is we we share well, you know i'm very open and honest with people and you know personally who well, are happy to share anything on, on this call or mm. you know uh, going forwards through esther or whatever but I, but I i think there's it, it depends on how people view altruistic
0: yeah well i'd say um, i'd say it's leaving the world in a better place than you found it as a, as a very simple top line so um gs being a the leaving a community not leaving hopefully obviously but yeah. but being in a community and and the community being better by you being there is is probably what i'm aiming for and that could be far and wide some companies might do it in one way and, and others in another some might do it quite broadly but do you think there's a place for gs in that world
1: i do and i think you know whether it's the work we do on sustainability whether it's you know work we push out to third parties other, you know contractors who we work with or whether it's just taking chances on things and trying to implement change because we could maybe be a bit afford to take more risks when mm. times are good. Um, I think that's, that's all positive. Yeah. Um, would the, would the industry be a better place without a GS or a Freeman or big players? I'm not sure it would. I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure. I think others would it evolve into it. Be, um, it'd be wrong to think that others wouldn't fill fill the gap because that's just, that's the law of the jungle, Mm. isn't it?
0: Yeah. I I think we've got a great range of contractors at the moment. You know, that's the thing that's probably hardest about what's coming next is we don't want to see that diluted. We don't want to, we don't want to, you know, we don't want a big one, a small one, any kind of one to not be in the mix. So it leads us nicely on to ESSA. and I can talk about this now because the voting has closed on the AGM, which is due to happen tomorrow, so um, I can in no way influence anybody to vote in a specific way, but you're up um, for re-election tomorrow on the board of Essa. Uh, you've been on their board for about a year now. Um, how have you found it? Um, and if you are re-elected tomorrow, um, what do you have in mind for your place on that board?
1: Yeah, this, this calls a week too late, isn't it? It should have been part of my campaign pitch last week. <laughs> um, I'm not a massive um, social media fan. I respond to LinkedIn and stuff, but uh, I, I think my campaign's been zero. So it's I, I've been flattered to be on the ESSA board for the past year. I mean, I wasn't voted on. I, I assumed Nick Marshall's role when Nick retired. Um, but I have found it really interesting. And, and I think when you join a board like ESSA, you can take one or two views. You can roll your sleeves up and get involved and try and change it. Um, or you can just cruise and, and tuck in and, and do the... Um, do the do the minimum to do it, and I think Lou, you're the same mind as me. You know, I, I, I'm pretty restless, and I like to um, I like to make a difference and change things. I, th- I feel the same way about ESSA. So you know, if I am re-elected, then I think going forwards, you know, I think I said it in my you know my hundred word piece with your picture and your bio. You know, I think we personally, I'm focusing on you know sustainability, innovation, equality. Those are the things that are, that are not just going to impact us all as businesses but impact our personal lives as well i mean every day we're big pushing our sustainability piece right now but there has also been some healthy debates you know on sessions like this about whether it's cost effective whether it's the right thing to do whether we should be throttling back from sustainability in order to just get everyone back on their feet or not um i think we need to build it into our everyday thinking you know and actually when you take a good long hard look at it often the most sustainable things to do are more profitable to do as well mm. because you're cutting processes out you're not using stuff you're, you're gaining economies as people head into that space so it's just a matter of getting on that journey and doing it and then mm. just just one last thing on, on the s and so I think it's just about modernization you know it's it's great to see um, a more diverse board and more diverse thinking you know we all like a good row on there sometimes don't we and it's a uh, it's not a horrible row. It's just a, you know, it's just a sharing of opinions, and I'm a big fan of that. So, mm. uh, if if we can push that, then so much the better.
0: Mm. I think. I think. Yeah, I I agree and I salute that. the um, The industry, I think, has been underwritten by. Uh, decades-old contracts that that define the way that we do things and I, I hope that out of this you know the lights of ESSA, AEO and the AEV can form a more efficient, effective, sustainable, diverse uh, working model going forward. I don't see this is like you say the point at which we all stop and then when we hit the restart button let's restart in a good way and not just retrace our steps back into decades of Tenancy agreements and contractual agreements that just actually don't work for the times that we've got now to build shows Right. Well, we are pretty much out of time but I'm just going to check if there's um, any other. Ah, We've got one more quick one uh, You talked about innovation and sustainability. What are GES doing going forward into 2020 to innovate and improve sustainability specifically?
1: Okay, well, in sustainability, we've got some programs that were already running before we hit the pandemic, um, focused around basically like a reuse policy. So, how much can we reuse? And for what we can't reuse, can we recycle it? So, I think on the latter, the big steps forward have been no PVC in, in graphics. We're fully water based on our inks now, where we have more stock that we reuse. In a positive manner whether that's you know your traditional shell scheme or alternatives that are on the market and one of the bigger challenges is flooring so we've spent a lot of time mapping the flooring supply chain um, where does all that flooring go you know we put down over a million meters of flooring every year And um, my biggest fear is waking up you know and informer saying can we go and see your recycle so we did it um, I was fearful that it was just getting buried in a coal mine in Poland somewhere, but it's not. It's getting made into garden furniture and automotive trim on you know, the scratchy plastics in your boot and stuff like that. So that's positive. But the real, you know, the real thing we're looking at and trying to uh, work with you know, manufacturers to develop is biodegradable carpets. That's really what you want. Right. Um, none right. of the venues have floors good enough for uh, no carpet right now, I don't think. Right. Um, so the, along those lines is what we're looking at but but equally you know internally with with st- with staff and team members what can we do to get in that mindset of being more efficient you don't mm-hmm. have to call it sustainable either you just call it efficient yeah you know and it, and, and it, it often chimes with more people
0: yeah and, and you can stick health and safety under the efficient as well, because if we're efficient, then we're obviously safer. Um, there's a, there is another question on here, but we're going to take that into a different session, I think, on the Ops Nest, and it's about the tender process side. I think there's, um, Amy's asked a question on there. I think we could spend a decent se- a whole session on the tender processing. Uh, so let's leave that for another time. Thank you so much, Jason. I know it's a, bit of a tough week all around, and I really appreciate you spending this time with us.
1: That's okay. Thanks, everybody. We enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you.
0: So, coming up next, sound like a proper newsreader. <laughs> Um, So next week um, we're going to run two sessions next week uh, and Kelly Reynolds from IDEX uh, is going to join me Kelly used to be um, head of Ops over at Clarion so she's got a great understanding of the UK market but also uh, from running shows in Dubai and Abu Dhabi um, over, over there as well and further afield so we were having a chat with the AEO and um, also with Essa about uh, the industry guidance that's coming up, um, you know, and and kind of briefing that out, uh, looking at uh, workshops, and trying to get some of that messaging um, into the supply chain and into operations communities. So we are going to do two sessions. Tuesday is going to be half an hour session, two o'clock. Kelly and I are going to be running through the um, Kind of the background of the guidance, how it's been written, who's collaborated on it, the kind of the nuts and bolts of what the guidance is, what it means um, and and the kind of headline topics of how that's going to impact everybody and then on the Thursday we're going to run an hour-long session at two o'clock and we're going to invite as many of you as possible Uh, to come into that and start working through the finest detail. So what does that look like on a a stand plan checking form, for example? What does that look like in terms of on-site checks and opening the show and ongoing management of the show when it's open and and things? So that workshop will hopefully then allow you guys to really get under the skin of what what we're going to have to do next. So the Tuesday is going to be open. Uh, it's a bit similar to this, just log in. Uh, the Thursday is going to be a registration process. So come along to the Tuesday and I'll give you the registration details after that. And we'll be putting you in groups so that you can start coming up with solutions yourselves. Then after that, we've got um, This is Our Life. Now, this is great. I'm very excited about this. So this is our last session in Ops in Lockdown, the 28th of July. And we, um, Aztec, are gonna compile a whole bunch of videos and storytelling of the absolute nuts parts of our jobs. And I'm gonna read out one that's come in already, just to give you an idea of some of the funny stuff that our life gives us. So um, this person, they lost a speaker at an event. Uh, he was eventually tracked down by the marketing manager just in time to get him quickly into his theatre but um, he had a wooden leg and so he was very slow getting to the theatre and then on the escalator it fell off and and then they had to figure it out from there so all oh, loads of stuff i've got the most random videos already come through um, of things being cleaned off signs that shouldn't have been there and shoveling water and all kinds of stuff so if you've got any video footage of any bonkers situations you've been in in your job send them over um and if it's just a story uh, just do a video selfie of yourself and send that in too and we're just that last session on the 28th i'm gonna have a glass of wine, a very large glass of wine in hand. Um, I'll probably have drunk half the bottle before the session started. Let's just have half an hour of just totally mindless enjoyment of what we've done, what we're doing and what we hope to do again in the future. So uh, the OpsNest has launched. We've had our first sign-ups already. Thank you very much to you founder members. That's really exciting. Chuffed to bits. Um, You can uh, join up now. So uh, just go into uk, uh, click on the OpsNest uh, button and sign up there. We're keeping it quite small for the first intake because it does involve getting all of you into specific kind of mentoring groups, uh, which is quite a big job. So I'm being easy on myself and we're going to do that um, in, in trenches. So... Um, the first group of people will be no more than 70 people. And and just so you guys know, anybody that's redundant or has lost their income, just ping me an email um, and I'll give you three months free access. Um, It's important that we stay connected as a community. What's happening right now will hopefully be a very temporary situation. Um, And we need you still in our community at the end of it. Um, And on that note as well, uh, excited to announce that ExpoCast have become the OpsNest recruitment partner. So we're going to have a jobs board in there where uh, companies can list jobs available and ExpoCast can do a bit of matchmaking between candidates and employers. So watch this space for that. Uh, But sign up. Thanks again for joining us.